Hey everybody, this is Serena. Welcome to episode three of the Talk About Cancer podcast. In this episode, I put myself in the shoes of a future guest by asking a friend to interview me about my dad's death and dying process. I met Liza back in social work school, and by now she has over a decade of experience in the medical social work field. In that role, she spends a lot of time working with patients and families, helping them navigate the journeys they must make between institutions and home, this world and the next. And she's amazing at it. In fact, when things got really rough with my dad a few years ago, I patched a few SOS calls to Liza myself, so she knows a little bit about my journey with my dad's death and dying process, which is also why she's the perfect person to do this interview with me. To be honest, going into this, I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it turned out to be a personal and honest dialogue between two good friends. And I think you can really hear the passion from both of us in this conversation. A big shout out to Liza for helping me get the story recorded as she's been pretty busy with the little guy lately. Now, let's dive in and I'll check in with you again at the end. So I wanted to share the story about death and dying based on my experience with my dad because the entire cancer experience with him sucked from beginning to the end. But I would say the death and dying part was the part that really surprised me. And I've been thinking a lot about it after the fact. I mean, it's been three and a half years. Um, and I sort of think about why why was this the part that made it really just feel wild? Um, mm. And I think it's because in our society, cancer is kind of a taboo topic, right? When people hear about you have cancer, somebody in your family have cancer, mm -hmm. the general response is, oh, I'm so sorry to hear mm -hmm. that. And I would say, thank you. And then we sort of move on from that, right? <laughs> That's sort of sure. standard exchange. Nobody knows what else to ask and you don't really know what else to bring up. So you sort of just move on. And, and that's pretty true for my family too. Like nobody sat down and talked about death and dying, what they thought would be a good death, what they wanted. I think people talk about like, yes, I want to be cremated versus some other way, right? But nobody really talks about what's happening while you're dying. And, and even just mm. the definition of the dying process is very fluid. I, I remember at one point, the oncologist basically recommended my dad to get on hospice care. That was a big moment because that was the moment where he basically said, it doesn't look like there's anything else we can do for you. So once we got onto hospice care, I was handed this blue pamphlet mm -hmm. by the hospice team which, you know, had some like basic information in there about, you know, what you should be expecting. And I just remember that it had this list of things laid out that was like months before the person uh -huh. dies, you may observe X, Y, and Z, you know, weeks before the person dies, days before, hours before, right? Oh, wow. And, and I was like, months 
before? Because in my mind, I always thought dying is immediately before the person passes on from this physical world, right? So even sure. just like, I think that idea of, oh, my dad has been dying this uh-huh. whole time was kind of a interesting idea. Interesting is one word. Yeah, I mean, it just it, I just it never jarring? thought about it that way. Yeah, probably. I think that's a better term. <laughs> um, and I remember I had to then like explain that to my mom because my mom doesn't, she can't read it. She wouldn't understand mm-hmm. it because it's in English. And I, and I remember I had to explain that idea to her because I wanted to prepare her. I sort of guessed that she had that same idea of you're not really dying until it's like moments before. We don't talk about what happens in that process, define what that process is. And so as I was going through it, the thing I was very thankful for, you know, was the hospice team because they were there to Mm -hmm. essentially guide us and interpret events and physical signs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it gave us a sense of timeline kind of throughout the way so that you can sort of like prepare mentally, right? And also, I think they were able to help interpret to say, this is going to help him feel comfortable. These are the types of things you can do. Even after he lost his consciousness, there were certain things that they were recommending us to do. So the hospice team was amazing. The amazing thing I remember about your dad is everything. He kept beating a lot of odds and things lasted longer than people (laughs) kept saying it would. Yeah, I remember you telling me like timelines that professionals have told you, but then also your dad, just one tough guy who is just <laughs> not, listen, you, I mean, you, you absolutely said he wasn't ready to go at certain points and that mm-hmm. that was a huge part. And I'm curious how you and your mom and dad talked about that. Cause I think that was a big piece of the story also, but, but what kind of things did they tell you to expect or to do for him that you found were helpful? Yeah. So I think just sort of like during that last month, month and a half, even before then, you know, my dad's physical strength and mobility had declined Mm -hmm. a lot. And so by that point, it was really hard for him to walk. And, you know, and, and I think that's something that we sort of can easily understand. Like if we're sick and we haven't eaten for a long time, you know, you feel weak and kind of wobbly sure. in the legs, right? And for people who's gotten sort of long-term injury, had the experience of going through PT, you know that if you don't use your muscles, you lose them. But with my dad's process, it was things that I also just didn't think about that were sort of deteriorating physically. So basic things like being able to swallow mm-hmm. his food was something that was starting to go. And that was. Did they prepare you for that? I don't think they told me in advance, but when that happened, rather than me saying, oh, for some reason he can't swallow, they sort of explain it's part of the process, right? Mm-hmm. The muscles there are also kind of breaking down because of the lack of nutrients. So they did give us, you know, some recommendations like try adding, I can't remember what it was, some kind of substance that makes your liquids more gel like. It was the thickeners. Yeah. Yeah. So so he could like swallow easier. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect something 
as basic as swallowing to mm-hmm. sort of deteriorate. And then there was the breathing. So at some point, yeah. the shorter breath started to come on. Again, one of those like very, very basic functions that you just take for granted. So at some point, the shortness of breath came in and, you know, we have to get him oxygen tubes in his nose. Mm-hmm. That sort of helped and didn't help. I don't know. And I remember it was actually around that time when the breathing part was becoming more difficult was when he was also becoming more restless mm-hmm. and having problems sleeping through the night. From that point on, it was just kind of intermittent day and night and definitely just had this general restlessness to him. And I couldn't tell if that was just physically how he was feeling because the oxygen level was low and it's causing discomfort. I don't Mm -hmm. know, but it could also just be him emotionally struggling with the fact that he was dying. That causes that kind of restlessness and not being able to sleep because as you mentioned, my dad was not ready to go. Mm -hmm. Very, very much so all the way till the end. And I think my mom and I tried our best to honor that. And, you know, we never tried to talk him out of it. I think part of mm-hmm. it is just like we didn't know how to, but there was also just kind of a sense of if this is what he wanted, right? we're not going to argue with him. So he was actually still taking medication while he was on hospice. And we had a very flexible hospice team who was mm-hmm. like, okay, that's that's what you want. That's what he wants. We're not going to argue with you, right? Whereas that's what I it should be though, right? Well, I've heard that some hospice agencies are not flexible in that way. It depends who you get. It's, it's yeah. really, yeah. Uh, so much of medicine is so subjective. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's tricky. So I think we were lucky in the sense that our, that team was just like, that's fine. Right. Meeting you where you're at. Very much so. And then at one point, he just kind of went into this very, very deep sleep. And at first, because he was like snoring. And so me and my mom were like, oh, he's getting a good sleep, Uh you know? And we're like, that's great. It like actually made us feel better that Mm -hmm. he was just snoring and sleeping, resting away. Until it was like a day and a half later and he was still sleeping. He didn't move here and there, but mm-hmm. he just never actually woke up. And so I called the hospice nurse and I was like, um, he's been sleeping for like 18 hours now. <laughs> or no, more than that, because a day is 24 hours. It's, it's more like, <laughs> you know, 36 hours now. And he's like, yeah, okay. Yeah might be in a slight coma you know we'll see you never know sure sometimes people do wake up and you just don't know so we'll see but if he doesn't wake up tomorrow you know i'll be by anyways and i can check him out so then you know we just kind of kept going with the day and then next day he woke up mm-hmm. full of energy and was like I want beard papa cream pie. And we were like, (laughs) 
you got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What could he have said that you would say no to? <laughs> so had a whole chocolate cream puff. <laughs> awesome. Um, watched, uh, you know, Chinese news and soap opera. And, um, and then he went back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then he never woke um, and it's it's so interesting because in hindsight, because the, the hospice nurse also mentioned, you know, sometimes <laughs> yeah. patients have this period of awakeness. Right. And that's a good time when you sort of gather the people around, you know, people that they might want to see and talk to and whatnot. And I was like, oh, crap, we missed it. Oh, shoot. You know, so I was like, okay, and I'm talking to the hospice team, and they're like, well, it's a good idea to still have relatives come over because hearing is the last thing to go. Right, sure. And so they said, even though he might not appear as if he is fully awake and conscious, he may still be able to hear you. And they said, in their experience, some people just hang on. And they're waiting for that one person to come and say something to them. So they're like, now's the time, right? Even though he doesn't seem like he's awake, probably good to just have people come and talk to him if there's anyone that, you know, you think he wants to hear from. Um, My dad was a very private person, but I don't think he felt shame or anything. Like he needed to hide the fact that he was sick and you know, that he had cancer. I mean, he was open about it with his coworkers. You know, we made a trip um, to see his his cousins, you know, while he was still relatively mobile. Right. But at that very last phase, because he was basically bedridden at that point, and so he didn't really want any visitors to come. Mm-hmm. My mom and I, again, were sort of like trying to just honor the man's wishes So it was just me, you know, I had my moment, I talked to him, my mom talked to him, and then I had Alan come over (laughs) to talk to him, and Alan's like, what do you want me to say? Um, (laughs) He he was, (laughs) I get get why he asked, I was like, just tell him you'll take care of me, things will be fine, just... Mm -hmm. Make him feel like it's going to be okay, right? This is what the hospice team told us. Just do it. (laughs) And he did, right? But at some point, my cousin called and she was like, how are you guys? What's going on? Mm -hmm. My mom's sister, my aunt, was asking her those questions. And my cousin's like, I don't know. I haven't heard from them. You know, she's like, how are you guys? Is there anything we can help with? And I think eventually we got to the conclusion like, yeah, you guys need to come over because... My mom needs you guys. It took that to allow you guys to get. <laughs> wait, it took that moment <laughs> for you to allow any support in. How long did it take yeah. for you to allow support in? Well, I don't think I realized that she needed that. And I think it took her to that point to voice it because they were already on the phone. What about you? Um, I don't know. I mean, we talked on the phone a bunch, but I don't know what you had as like in person. I didn't really think to even ask for that because I was just so in this mindset of 
he wouldn't want to have a bunch of people over, so we're not going to have a bunch of people over. Mm-hmm. But when they did come over, it was like, hallelujah. <laughs> right? Like, it was like... <laughs> not necessarily. I'm glad to hear that because not everybody, when when family gathers, that's not always a great thing. Um, it's true. But it's wonderful yeah. that that was something that was beneficial. Yeah. Was there any yeah. hard part about having them there? No. They just sort of came by. You know, they didn't stick around. They said their parting words, right, once they came by. So that was also nice. But I think it was also nice because I think it just sort of at that point moved from me and her being full-time caregivers to really now the parting part of the process. Did it make it more real toward the end that this was actually happening? Yeah, I think we had to mentally get there and Mm. then it was like, okay, this is really maybe how we would have defined the beginning of the end, like the actual dying process, even though it actually starts way before that by some definition, right? Oh, and then I also, I actually called my sister Mm -hmm. in Asia right? because my sister was very pregnant at the time. She had asked a few times if she should come because I was sort of keeping her up to date just to say, you know, there's not much time. Expect him to go Mm -hmm. in weeks or days. And so she was sort of like, should I come? And I was like, you're like, I don't know, eight months pregnant. I mean, she she visited the year before. They had a good time going to Napa, you know, with the grandkids. Oh, right. The wineries and whatnot. Yeah. So I was like, you came. And that's actually the important thing that I feel like that I always try to live with now, going to a funeral is something that in my mind is respectful, but mm-hmm. it's more important to actually be there when the person can really enjoy your company. And so like whether or not she actually made it to that last part and mm-hmm. the funeral, in my mind, it wasn't really that important. And I kept telling her like, dad will understand, he won't be mad at you because you didn't come and so we actually put them on speakerphone um with our kids and so my sister was like okay kids now say bye to grandpa you know and they're like sure where is he going (laughs) yeah that i was just gonna say that i they were young like how does that opens up a whole thing of conversation (laughs) yeah my sister was just like you know grandpa's sick so he's gonna be going to heaven soon how old were the kids? No, maybe two and four. So I, I actually, I don't know if they remember. Um, they were very sweet. They're like, okay, bye. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's different. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how many more days to sort of continue, but I, I've heard that sometimes there's a perception that going on hospice hastens death. Because they stop treating you because, you know, all these things, right? Mm-hmm. And I never I never really looked at it that way, probably because I have learned about what the purpose is. And I signed my dad up for palliative care right when he got diagnosed, which is a whole different type of care, always with the intention of transitioning to hospice care. So I, I never, I think, had that perception. But the interesting thing, that I experienced with my dad um, and also actually with my grandma when she was on hospice care 
is the administration of morphine. Oh dear, sure. Remember when <laughs> I said my dad had a moment, had a chocolate cream puff, and then never、mm-hmm. came back to consciousness again. At that point, the hospice team said, "To just sort of keep him comfortable, we recommend that you administer this much of morphine every two hours." That was probably the only part during the hospice care that I was a little bit conflicted, right? Because I think I understood his body was so weak by that point. If I kept giving him morphine, he literally would just never wake up. On the flip side, I was also afraid that if he woke up, he would be in pain. He would be just out of sorts. Like, where the heck am I? I cannot see what's happening. There was a part of me that was like. I am kind of ushering him on this path, and I think that was the only moment when I was like, because I think your desire to want him to continue、mm. is so strong that you're sort of、mm-hmm. like, I feel like I'm closing that door in that moment. But then, because I also don't want him to wake in this kind of delirious state that he just wasn't going to recover from, that I was like, okay. Let's do this, and let's be super regimented. Every two hours on the clock, we had a buzzer. Me and my、really? mom took shifts.、Sure. We had a little log, right? That was the only part that I think in that whole experience about being on hospice that I was like, "Wow, okay, this is." I didn't expect this, and so one night, you know, my mom—it was her shift, maybe—but I remember she came and woke me up, and it was. August twenty seventh, early morning, probably like two a.m. ish, and she said, "Hey, I think Dad stopped breathing." And I was like, "Okay, let me go check with you, right?" So we go into the living room, which is where he was at that point, and I check his breathing, and I was like, "Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think I'm feeling anything." Under the nose, I also checked, you know, the pulse,、mm-hmm. um, just on the wrist. I was like, yeah, I can't, you know, think I feel anything anymore. You know, his his skin felt, it was still warm, but definitely felt cooler. What my mom did was, because she's Buddhist, you know, a few days before, because she kind of expected this to come. She had dug up this kind of Buddhist chanting, singing. It's it's basically chants that they then make into like a nice song, so you can like play it and listen to it, and it's supposed to like help your karma or whatever. <laughs> But so help everyone's karma or help the spirit of the person who's passed or. It's not specific for people who's passed. I mean, it's usually about helping you. Get detached from suffering, and that's just a general Buddhist belief: is that life is suffering. So oh, anything well, that they try to like help you with is to detach from worldly things. So she put that on、ah. her little 1990s CD player, because also the other belief of Buddhists is that you don't move the body、right. when it's still warm; you wait until it's cooled off. So she said, "Okay, I'm gonna put this on. He can listen to it. He might still be in between worlds. Maybe this can help him move on, right?" 
And then we went back to sleep. You were able to sleep? I was. So this is this is a good question because I was relieved. And it was it was also one of those very conflicting feelings. Elaborate. Dad just died. Yeah. Right. Should be sad. Is kind of the logical reaction. But in some ways we knew this was coming mm-hmm. for weeks. We had time to think about it. Well, you keep saying weeks, but I guess one question I have in my mind, you talk about the recognition that dying is a longer process than you ever imagined. Is that kind of where the focus is for you about this? And in terms of the feeling of relief, it was more about since the hospice started, or do you think maybe it was also because it had been such a long journey? The relief was that the suffering ended for my dad. That makes sense. Physically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, And to watch him suffer was the most heartbreaking thing. Yeah. And I was, you know, sort of like journaling after the fact about this. And I remember sort of writing that that I didn't really know, like when when people use the term heartbroken, mm. I always just thought it was such like a cheesy term, you know, <laughs> because I think you use that you use that term like in I don't know, like pop songs, love uh-huh. songs, right? Like all those things, right? I mean, I feel like the term heartbroken gets thrown around so much, and and you know, I don't have children, and so I don't think I've ever experienced that until watching my dad going through this and suffer. And I was like, wow, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. That's what that term means. To find the root of that is horrible. But you're right. It's real. People just use it in a silly way that is not (laughs) accurate. I mean, to them at that moment, it is. I'm just, everything is usually very kind of cerebral for me. But that's an understatement. Yes. And so at that moment, I was like, okay, this is this is what that term means and what that emotion feels like. So when he passed, the relief was from that. And also just, you know, like I said, we wanted to respect his desire to continue to fight it till the end. Yeah. But that was exhausting, too. Absolutely. Like, I felt a little bit guilty, right, to feel relief at that point. But I also understood why. And I knew that for me, the recovery and, like, the mourning and the grief would Mm -hmm. come later. Because at that moment, that was the kind of overwhelming emotion that I had, which was just, like, just, like, a huge sigh of Very full-body sigh. Yeah. And, you know, and then we had, we had to call the hospice team, you know, and then the funeral home. The logistical things that have to take place. Yeah. And I remember it was a hot summer day. And so by the time it was like eight or nine in the morning and we were making these arrangements, I was starting to be like, come on, people, we got to move because it's hot. Yeah. The practical side of things. And the interesting thing is, so in the morning, I call Alan, 
And then I was like, Ellen, can you go call the funeral home? I'm still trying to sort things out here. Ellen's like, okay. And then he goes and calls and he's like, I can't get through. Apparently their entire network is down. I remember Like there's this. no way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he was like, there's no way for me to get through. I'm like, it was my dad hanging on yeah. for that last bit. You know what I'm saying? It's I- like, mm, you're not getting me, getting rid of me that fast. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, eventually they took him quietly, went to the car, just like they think what he would have wanted. You know, it's interesting when you told me that you wanted to discuss this. I wasn't sure because you say that the f- podcast is is going to be for patients, survivors, caregivers. I didn't know what you were going to want to focus on for mm-hmm. this interview because you have such a story because you also being the kind of person that you are and the kind of daughter that you are, you are involved so intimately from day one. Now you're an interpreter, you're a patient advocate, you were a researcher, you were, I mean, you have so many different stories and so many different elements to being the daughter of someone who died of cancer that I didn't know what you were going to want to focus on, but I hear you talking a lot about the focus on the dying part. I guess my question for you is now that you've had time to ruminate on this and you've been thinking about it and you said you kind of feel like the dying process isn't necessarily when hospice started. Looking back, you feel like the dying process started at a different point or was it upon a first diagnosis or upon when the oncologist started to change the way they were speaking about going forward? I don't know that there is a definite line for when the dying process started. I think that makes a lot more sense. For the record, I don't think (laughs) there's a specific moment in time, but in the beginning of this, you were very focused on that. I found that very interesting because, as you said, you're more cerebral. You look for those specific answers and being your friend and being able to talk to you while you were going through a lot of this. I would hear a lot of the questions that you had and you want very specific answers to things that might not have specific answers. Although being the amazing researcher that you are, you often find very specific answers. Did you go about the same process as when your dad was diagnosed and when you started researching different treatments and different things? Did you apply that to the dying part? Yeah, but there wasn't as much information out there. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would that. say that the information that's available was pretty much already packaged in that little blue pamphlet that the hospice team handed it's to probably me. a very small pamphlet. <laughs> I mean, it's just a list. <laughs> yeah, and, I can picture um, from there, I definitely did more Google search, you know, mm. and, and a lot of actually the research I would do is in like online support groups that I was a part of. And and I would say even before we got on hospice care and when I realized death is coming sooner rather than later, death was coming at the point that he was diagnosed, right? But again, it's sort of like, when is your mind ready for it? So I would, I think, in addition to just like looking at Google, I also looked at online support groups to just sort of search like for keywords like death, dying, (laughs) 
um, <laughs> and see what I would find. Um, from the support groups, those are more specific to individuals, their own experiences, and the type of cancer they have, the physical ailments that ha they have by the time they're close to death. And so somehow that pamphlet from the hospice team just like blew my mind that I was like, wait, there's this sequence of yeah. things? Like I was like, really I never is. knew. And, and it's like on a timeline. <laughs> like, and it, it covers just... a lot more diagnoses than cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's just about death. Like there's yes. so many different ways we get there. But then we get there. Yeah. Is there anything you would change about how things were handled toward the end? Um. So after the fact, I was reading the book Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, who is this physician who he writes about this problem that exists in the medical field where physicians aren't being sort of transparent enough with people about how long they have to live mm. based on the so conditions true. that they have. And I do think that's true. I see this in a lot of the support groups where there's this kind of culture of you got to fight, you got to fight till the end. And if the patient says, I don't want to go through that, it's not worth it to me, that there's like some families really get into it and they really argue over you shouldn't give up, mm. you know, like, why would you give up? And so in his book, he was sort of like, you know, you really just need to talk to a person. What do they want? What's yeah. worth living? What's living for one person is different for another person. Mm -hmm. He gives this example in the book of one person's like, hey, as long as I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch TV, I'm good, right? <laughs> Everything else doesn't matter. And then he was talking about for his own dad, the mobility thing was super important. Mm -hmm. He's like, if I come to a point where I'm not able to just take care of myself on my own, life is not worth living. Mm -hmm. So I guess the one thing that I would try to change is probably having that discussion mm -hmm. earlier on with my dad. And also, I think towards the end, there was a lot I could tell, obviously, and I can't put myself in his shoes, but there were things happening upstairs that mm -hmm. he was struggling with. And I I didn't know how to talk to him about that. And I wish there was some way to do it. That actually probably would have been a good point to pull in the chaplain. I don't know why I never thought about it. To be honest, I tried my darn hardest. So I don't have a lot of regrets coming out I'm of I'm glad to and hear I think that. that's, that's one thing that I can say, and I'm happy that I can say that. The interesting thing about it is, I mean, you talk about how the hospice people say, you know, whether it's the time to have people come and say their goodbyes and whatnot. I think everyone talks about it only on a one-sided conversation. And yes, the hearing is the last thing to go. And there is a strong belief and good reason to believe that people sometimes hang on until they hear a particular voice or until someone leaves, actually. Sometimes they wait until <laughs> someone goes away and then they're like, okay, now I can go. She's left the room. It's fine. I swear. It's true. But it's also for the people who are going to go on living, right? So it's what they might need so that yeah. they know that they've done what they felt they needed to do in order to have closure is a, a word that I don't think makes a lot of sense. There's no such thing. 
grieving is an ongoing process. There is no closure to it exactly, but hopefully people feel that they got some element of what they needed to say a version of goodbye. Mm -hmm. And then the grieving process is a very personal one that takes forever because I don't believe that people that we love and that have been a huge part of our lives ever really completely were over them. That's not a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, but hopefully we've done what we felt we needed to do to honor our relationship with them while they were here. Yeah. Do you have not necessarily advice because everybody's situation is so unique, but is there any message you would want to share or anything that you would want someone to gain from this experience that you went through, which is an incredibly difficult one? It's the things that I've already mentioned, which is, mm. and I think because that was very strongly my belief and maybe to the detriment of like care for myself and my mom. <laughs> I'm going to stay quiet on that one. But respect the person's wishes because in situations like this, I understand that family members are hurting for their own reasons. Like I've seen situations where the person's expected to continue to get treatment when they're the ones that have to go through the physical mm. trauma of mm -hmm. chemo, radiation, these very, very harsh treatments on your body and all the side effects that comes along with it. You know, respecting their wishes as best as you can to have a open and honest dialogue about what each person needs. That's that part. In that process. Yeah. It's just hard. We don't have the vocabulary we don't see this behavior modeled. I certainly haven't mm -hmm. in my family, right? To talk about, well, I would say for the Chinese culture, mm -hmm. it's like rude to talk about death with your elders because really? it's like you're trying to curse them so that uh. they're like going to die early, right? Oh my. And so there's all kinds of taboo things that you're not supposed to do. And so like, I think for my particular culture, like, you just kind of dance around it. So when you get thrown into this, you just don't know where to pull from. And they don't have to be hard conversations, to be honest, because I think I've read about, for example, like Native American cultures where some, maybe not all, it's more about a celebration sure. of the person's life as opposed to, I think the Chinese culture focuses very, very heavily on the mourning and the griefing piece because that's also as a way to show how much you love your family members that has passed. Like in Taiwan, at the funerals, they hire professional criers at the person's funeral. I've heard about this. Because it's it's just this whole culture of like, oh my gosh, I am so sad that you are now gone. Which I get, like, of course we're sad, but the unintended ramifications, yeah. you know, from that kind of mentality is just, it's taboo. You don't talk about it. Nobody knows how to talk about it. And then you don't know what to do mm -hmm. when all of a sudden you're a part of it. So yeah. <laughs> lean on your social worker friends and hospice friends. And I will say, if I have any legacy to the work that I did, I hope it's exactly what you're talking about because I spent many years very gently encouraging people to have these kinds of conversations while they were well enough to have them. Mm -hmm. Because the one thing I can tell you is that doctors 
are not trained to do this, to help people have these kinds of conversations. And listen, first, the patient has homework to do where they should be thinking through certain scenarios of what they'd want and what they wouldn't want. And it can be a little vague because you don't, you can't, you really can't check every box and cover every scenario, but there are some big ones that you should be able, this is why people fill out living wills. But what I always tell people is I think one of the most important things you can do is fill out a healthcare proxy document which is when you assign someone who would speak for you if you have no voice, if you have no way to speak for yourself, then who yeah. would you want to speak with you? But you should never name that person unless you are willing to have a conversation with them about what you would want because you are doing them a favor. You're asking them a favor. You're asking them to speak for you if you can't speak. So in order to ask them to do that, you have to do them a favor and tell them about your wishes to take away the guilt factor from them. Because if they have to make any decisions for you, they're not making decisions for you. They're just yeah. saying what they already know that you would want based on past conversations that you've had. And that yeah. is the biggest gift you can give your family or your healthcare proxy or whoever is designated to be in charge if you can't be in charge. And it's the thing yeah. everybody's absolutely horrible about. And I wish that it was a normal part of the healthcare system where everyone had a guide through these conversations mm -hmm. and not just an overzealous social worker who tries to help people not have horrible <laughs> guilt and gut-wrenching times later on. But the beautiful thing about your story is that you really did such an amazing job about trying to make sure that your father was as in charge as he could be of his own past. And even when that put a lot of extra work on you and your mother, which it did, because you guys chose a path that was definitely not the easy one. There were many tubes and many different things and a lot going on, but you did it because you listened to him and you tried your best to do what he wanted. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's the biggest gift you can give someone. I mean, that is one of the hardest parts of anybody's dying process. But you guys did it in a way that was absolutely loving. We're a good team. Mm -hmm. So that was my story. You know, when you put two social workers together in a virtual room, we can't help but intellectualize about cultural norms or the importance of healthcare proxy. But I do hope that you found that conversation helpful. Maybe you learned something new. Maybe it was cathartic just to listen to someone else's experience. A few things I want to just mention in closing. The first is that I mentioned about professional criers. And that honestly was just a name I made up on the spot because I've never actually seen that practice in the United States. So I didn't know what the official English term for it was. And when I looked it up in Google, I found out that it's actually a very common practice in many parts of the world. And the term is actually professional mourners. And for the Chinese, instead of it being a way to show how much you love your family member, which is a very Western way of thinking about this, it's actually a way to honor your family member. Because traditionally, having a large crowd at your funeral is a sign of your social status in the community, which makes much more sense than what I had said. Also, I mentioned about the book Being Mortal in the episode, so I've included a link to Atul Gwande's website. You can find it in the show notes. I'd love to hear your feedback about what you think of the episode. 
you can go to talkaboutcancerpodcast.com to get in contact with me. Thanks for listening.